Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 17th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The British Prime Minister has begun meeting with representatives of the opposition in the hope of finding a consensus on how the UK might agree with Europe on the way it leaves the European Union. This follows the resounding rejection of Theresa May's deal by MPs on Tuesday. Speaking outside of 10 Downing Street last night, Mrs May said she was disappointed that the leader of the Labour Party had chosen not to take part in this cross-party approach. The Prime Minister was speaking after seeing off a motion of no confidence tabled by Jeremy Corbyn, who wants the government to rule out leaving the EU without a deal. The government won the confidence motion by a narrow margin of 19 votes, allowing Mrs May continue to fulfil her commitment to the Irish backstop. She would have lost that vote had the 10 DUP MPs not voted with the government. We'll talk about this now with Jim Wells, who's a DUP MLA for South Down, and also with Matt Carthy, who's a Sinn Féin MEP. And good morning to both of you, and thank you for joining us here in the programme this morning. Jim Wells, if Mrs May is committed to the backstop and to the DUP have voted confidence in her, does that not mean that the DUP is equally committed to the backstop? Well, the DUP is not committed in any way to the backstop, and indeed the only reason where the political turmoil we are at the moment is the backstop. If that was dropped, we're in totally new territory. But Mrs May is committed to it, isn't she? Uh, and Mrs May has accepted that her agreement that included the backstop is dead in the water, and she just has experienced the largest political defeat of a Prime Minister in the history of the United Kingdom, 230 votes. But are you suggesting so can... that Mrs May cannot be taken at her word? Uh, No, we've we've had discussions with Mrs May and I can assure you she realises that her agreement is dead in the water. Uh, There are developments overnight, Michael, that you may not be aware of and and one of those is that there's a proposal on the ground that the backstop would be temporary and time-limited. In other words, it could be implemented for a short period to get us over the present impasse, but then would be uh, part of the agreement would be that it would be deleted. So uh, the DUP are making reasonable proposals to the Prime Minister to try and get around this constitutional crisis, because the one thing, Michael... It, we think it, that- it won't wash. I, I mean, that's the clear message from Philip Hammond. Uh, the Daily Telegraph, I'm not sure if you saw that yesterday, they published a, a transcript of a, a conversation that he had with business leaders, and he said that very clearly, removing the Irish backstop arrangement 
arrangement cannot be negotiated with the EU. Uh, that comment was made before the DUP proposals went to Theresa May. Uh, the only thing that myself and Mr McCarthy will, will agree on this morning is that nobody wants a hard Brexit. No one wants to fall off the cliff, as it's mm. called, by certain media outlets. Everybody wants this sorted out. The one thing I can But do you not understand what the backstop is? I do understand what the backstop is. Well, then how can it be time-limited? Well, because if it's not time-limited, then It's we not a backstop. We could be signed up to it for if generations. It's not, if, if it's not time-limited, it's not a backstop. And therefore, it won't exist because we so, will not support it. So either you don't understand what the backstop is, or, or you're trying to reinvent how it's interpreted. No, no, Michael. I, I need to say to you, Michael, we understand all too well, and does the 120-odd Conservative MPs who rebelled primarily this issue, we understand why there's a need for the backstop, but the difficulty is we cannot. How can an unlimited arrangement be time-limited, in other words? Well, it, it, that's exactly, and we we were prepared to consider a very short time limit, and then it falls. But we are not going to sign a blank check, which gives the Irish Republic. So that's a not a backstop. You, you you need to put another name on it. Well, okay, let's give it another name. But in effect, what we're advocating is a temporary backstop for a very short, defined period. Now, or or, uh, or else what? You 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 crash out, is uh, it, and return uh, to a hard border? Well, y- yes, well, we but. We we won't, we don't want to do that, Michael. I mean, let's be honest about it. We know it's in nobody's interest of any political description mm. on the island of Ireland or the UK to have a uh, a crash out a, a, a no deal Brexit. Okay, I mean, but I, I want I want to come to Matt Carthy. But before I do, uh, are you saying that if you crash out, you will return to a hard border? That there was a hard border because Arlene Foster has been saying there's never been a hard border. Oh, we don't want a hard border. The only people. No, but you accept that there border. used to be a hard border on this island that we lived through. <laughs> Yes, and I lived through it, and I can tell you now Northern Ireland and, and, and the UK prospered during that period, but nobody wants that. Okay. We've moved on. All right, let me go to Matt Carthy. Uh, I'm sure you'll uh, welcome that clarity from the DUP this morning. <laughs> I, I suppose in one sense, so Jim is suggesting in relation to the backstop, if we look at the backstop as an insurance policy... which But I before, think we, before, before you talk about that, I'm sure you'll welcome the fact that he recognises that there was a hard border on this island. Well, anybody that has any, you don't even need to be have been born during the period. You know, the leader of the DUP seems to think that there wasn't one. Yeah, and I think that just reinforces many people's opinion that Arlene Foster isn't living in the real world when it comes to these matters. And even the attempted clarification yesterday that they were talking about um, simply um, security or um, military border controls um, as opposed to what a hard border really is. We are full of stories right across this region of anecdotes of the days of butter smuggling and um, all the rest that came with that when we did have what was an economic, a social and a political hard border in which people like Aidan McInnesby okay. a huge price uh, when crossing over the, the years. Right. So, Absolutely, we don't want to see any hardening of the current border that's there. The border we have at the minute is actually too hard. Okay, and the consensus, the consensus on the papers uh, this morning is uh, that we are facing a a very real prospect of uh, the UK leaving without a a deal. So, do you think there is the prospect of returning to a hard border? I hope not, and I think what we now need to do is reaffirm our stated positions, particularly in relation to the Irish government and the European Union. I was pleased yesterday, Mm. sitting in the European Parliament, to hear 
every senior individual who's involved in the negotiations at every level, at a European level, saying that there are no circumstances in which they will countenance any diminution of the backstop. So while um, Jim it talks about you know, alternative proposals or discussions that are now on the table, they're on the table in terms of internal Westminster politics. Let's not forget that the other night in that um, key vote, as it was, been mm. the vast, vast majority of British MPs voted against the expressly stated and declared wishes of the vast majority people in the North. The people in the North voted to remain part of the European Union. They have let it be known ever since that they want special arrangements to be put in place yeah, to protect yeah. their economy, our All-Ireland, uh, our All-Ireland mm. institutions, and to protect the Good Friday Agreement. And they have indicated through the representative organisations, whether they be in the farming community, the community sector, or the business community, that they support this backstop as the least worst option and yet British MPs voted against that and I think that's very telling Okay, let Jim Wells respond to that because Jim Wells represents the people of Northern Ireland. Jim Wells. Well, first of all, I hope Mr McCarthy would at least have the respect to call us Northern Ireland. We don't refer to his country as the free state. We don't refer to Queen's County or King's County. It's Northern Ireland and let, let, could he at least respect us in that respect? Secondly, in his um, contribution there, he never made any reference to unionism and there's not a shade of unionism, be it moderate or be it right wing, who countenance, support, have any empathy whatsoever for the backstop. And he has to accept in Northern Ireland, in this part of the United Kingdom, nothing can be agreed unless the majority unionist community sign up to it. And there is when no you hear support. from the Ulster Farmers Association or, or the business uh, representatives in Northern Ireland, surely they're representing people from all sides of the community. <laughs> Well, first of all, lots of unionist farmers would say that the UFU doesn't speak for them. Secondly, these are all people who supported Remain within the European Union. These are people who are hard, bad losers. We call them Ramoners up here. So therefore, they have a vested interest. But unionism from Ulster Unionism, TUV, DUP, PUP, you name it, every one of them are opposed to the backstop and a permanent sort of Damocles hanging over us. And that, Michael, we're down to two paragraphs here. We're down mm. to very, very little. If we can sort out the backstop, then there will be agreement and there will be a bright future I, for I, us I, all. I, are, you, are you sure that what happened yesterday, though, wasn't a, a case of turkeys deciding not to vote for Christmas? Because had you voted against Mrs May, she would have lost the vote uh, and, oh, yes. uh, and it may have triggered a general election. Uh, and had there been a general election... Uh, well, then the DUP would lose its position of power. Well, first of all, I'm very confident the DUP would return with at least 10 seats. Yes, but would you be kingmakers? Well, probably not, I've got yes. to be honest, because this is a once-in-a-lifetime situation we're in. This last so whilst the 10 MPs that are members of the DUP holds the United Kingdom and 27 European countries to ransom, uh, you've decided to hold on to that by supporting a woman who's committed to the Irish backstop. The, the, your, your difficulty there is that there's 120 Tory MPs also doing what you're suggesting. In other words, we've won this argument, a large amount of a political opinion in the United Kingdom actually gets what the DUP are saying and mm. are supporting it. But you'd have lost by one, had 10 MPs yes. 
voted against her, she'd have and, lost by one. And, and the other option was a Jeremy Corbyn government, which we would never sign up to. So there's no danger uh, on a confidence and supply motion the DUP voting uh, to allow Labour in, but also to say that she lost the vote uh, the other night mm. by 230 votes. So even if the DUP had all voted with, with her, she was still going to lose by, by 220. Uh, it, could, it could have resulted in a Conservative government uh, with uh, a majority uh, in Westminster that wouldn't have required the confidence and supply of the DUP. Yeah, but the problem is that the, the Conservatives still have this problem that about 110, 120 of their own MPs would support the DUP. So she was still never going to get the backstop through. Mr McCarthy has to accept that backstop in its present form will not happen. Why, why is, won't you accept that, Matt Carthy? Because as long as Ireland continues to insist on this backstop, we're facing this no-deal scenario, which means the return of a hard border. Are you not shooting yourself in the foot? No, because without the backstop, we're also returning to a hard border. The backstop is the insurance policy to ensure that we are able to continue to um, maintain and develop the... Take away the backstop. Take take away the backstop and allow the United Kingdom to leave the European Union and then take the next two to four years to avoid a hard border. Well, the difficulty is we've had the past two and a half years where the British government have been given ample opportunity and several opportunities, in fact. But you know that they're going to come up with one of these trade arrangements, a a Norway plus or a Canadian-style agreement, and if you have four years to do it, surely uh, there's nothing to be worried about. Why put this political impasse in place? Actually, we don't know that. Um, And the truth of the matter is that the backstop is in place as an insurance policy. We expect and hope, and if you are right, then it will never need to be used. But the truth of the matter is that there are different forms of trade agreements, including the so-called Canada trade deal and others, that would satisfy what we would need in relation to east-west trade, Mm. for example. But in relation to north-south trade, it would still require additional burden, additional bureaucracy and additional red tape that would quite literally put businesses um, that operate on an all-Ireland basis out of business. They would, um, and it would create difficulties. And you don't believe that the remedies can be found? Well, we've had two and a half years for a British government to present a proposal to deal with the issue pertaining to the border in Ireland. They haven't mm. yet done so at all. They haven't come up with any credible option. We had a situation, if you remember, in December 2016, where um, whereby a last-minute um, agreement by the British government where they essentially agreed at a political level to the backstop. We had the situation um, late last year where they formalised that in a withdrawal agreement. Okay. We now have a situation where the House of Commons have rejected that. But let's be under no illusion. Mm. The House of Commons didn't vote against it on the basis of the backstop. The, the House of Commons voted against the withdrawal agreement for a myriad mm. of different reasons. Many, many of the so MPs wanted to stay in Europe evidence. or to have a second referendum. But let me put that point to Jim Wells that I was putting to you. Jim Wells, do you believe that if uh, the insistence on the backstop was dropped, that there would be the possibility of doing a, a deal uh, and uh, that uh, trade relations uh, and the movement of people could continue as is on this island uh, by coming to some arrangement over the next four years? Michael, if the backstop is dropped, we're in totally new territory, and I think we would move rapidly to agreement, and indeed we'd be moving to something Canada++. Canada, but also uh, at the plus being to ensure 
free frictionless trade between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic. We're in a we're totally different ballgame. Now, the DUP and the Conservatives have misgivings about some of the rest of the mm. withdrawal agreement, mm-hmm. but reality is we're prepared to bite the bullet on those if we can get round this one difficulty. And can the, Irish, can the Irish trust, and can the Europeans trust the DUP and the British on that? Well, <laughs> we're prepared to go very public about it. We're prepared to even draft the wording that we would want to go into the agreement so it wouldn't be a matter of trusting the DUP, it would be a matter of trusting the agreement. And as long as this sort of Damocles no longer hangs over us in the form of the backstop, you would find we're in a totally different world. And a lot of the, Europe, uh, the MPs in Westminster who have difficulties with the agreement would drop their opposition, and I think there'd be a healthy majority for that. So it's all hinging in a very short section of the agreement, and it's the backstop. There's really no other show in town. OK, quick response, Matt Carthy, and then we'll wrap up. Without the backstop, there can be no agreement because without the backstop, there are no assurances in relation to the protections that are required on all Ireland, which the people in the north have consistently demanded. So the the backstop is the only show in town in relation to um, in, in relation to the withdrawal agreement. But what we now need to put in place are adequate contingency strategies to ensure that we're protected in the event that the House of Commons remains in this deadlock. And that has to um, include an option for a poll on a united Ireland and it needs to include emergency funding for those regions and sectors that could potentially be very damaged by the road route that Jim Wells wants to take. I won't ask Jim Wells to take the bait there. We'll leave it there because we've (laughs) run over time. I have to leave it. Thank you both indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Jim Wells, DUP, MLA for South Down and Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin MEP. Michael Reed on LMFM. The ESRI has published a study of 8,500 children in order to examine the academic performance of the children who owned mobile phones at an early age. Uh, They've found that 40% of children own a mobile by the age of nine and uh, that children in socially disadvantaged schools are more likely to have a mobile phone. On the other hand, children whose parents are on high incomes and have higher levels of education are less likely to own a mobile phone by the age of nine. Those children who own a mobile phone at that age scored 4% less on average in standardised reading and maths tests by the time they were 13 years of age. Tanya Ward is Chief Executive with the Children's Rights Alliance. Good morning to Tanya and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, The authors of uh, the study say they hope that this will help schools in making decisions on when they should or should not restrict phones being used. Uh, What does it say to you? Well, I think uh, looking at the study overall, I mean, what was published was uh, really just a summary of of a bigger study. And I mean, it's very interesting. It's very interesting because it's telling us that 40% of nine-year-olds have a mobile phone. And it's very interesting showing that, you know, there is a difference depending on the income of your parents, whether you're more likely to have a phone or not. But the study doesn't tell you the cause of, or the reason behind why some children uh, are, are doing, uh, getting poorer scores in terms of literacy and in terms of maths. Um, and one of the things I'd like to see is you know, a deeper understanding of that because they had quite a broad group of children, mm-hmm. 8,500 children. I'd like to see what the causal link is. So is it that, because we know there are already problems with excessive uses of uh, a mobile phone or smartphones, is that actually the underlying reason that children who spend too much time on their phone too much time on the internet, 
do, do don't do as well uh, from a literacy and, and and a numeracy point of view because we, the age old debate we've had previous to mobile phones is around television uh, and it's kind of well accepted now if you watch too much television generally it impacts on your literacy and, and your math scores mm. so that's one of the questions I, I have in relation to the study Okay well there are other studies and I was reading about this in uh, the Irish Times yesterday and they were reporting that, that these international studies have found uh, that the use of mobile phones uh, can impact uh, through cognitive overload increased distraction and altering memory and learning patterns and that it can also reduce both sleep duration and sleep quality which can have an impact on academic progress that's right i mean i think and i think the the core reason behind some of this is to do with some of the apps that children are using um, I mean, they do change how you think about the world. Mm. They change your, your 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 brain patterns. They do the same to adults as well. Um, you know, using excessively again, using excessively use a phone, using a phone at night time, using a phone in your bedroom. It's not good for adults. It's probably not good for a child late at night as well. It's kind so of it, logical, isn't it? I, I mean, I think yeah. a lot of us uh, as children, uh, those of us who are of a certain age at least, uh, would say that we were better at spelling than we are as adults because uh, we're using things like Word uh, documents uh, and uh, our spelling uh, faults are being corrected for us automatically. That's right. I mean, uh, you know, it's more challenging yourself to have to do some of these the, the, these activities. Mm. But I think the, the other side is of mobile phone usage is, I mean, it would be good to hear from the children and the parents uh, in these particular families as well. Why do they all have mobile phones at the age of nine? Um, the international studies are saying that children uh, like to have the phones at a younger age because they feel more confident. Um, and the older they get into their teenage years, they feel more naked without their phones or mm. without their smartphones because they're using it as one of their main ways to socialise and connect with friends and with, with families. Um, and I think one of the other things we need to think about is, you know, how are phones being used from an educational point of view? Because they can be very useful. Mm. A lot of parents will say they want their child to have a phone because it means they can keep an eye on them and they can ring them to check, you know, they're walking home from school. Are they in a friend's house? But you don't need the smartphones for that. Uh, you don't you need don't, internet no, access you, for that. Yeah, you don't mm, need yeah. the smartphones for that. And I think most of the time when children do get their first phone, it's often just uh, the ordinary phone and they use it to call people. And as they gr- as they grow older... They're mostly using phones then through messaging and they're using it through apps. So, you know, these are digital technology is, is embedded in our society now um, and children and young people are the most active users. And actually in Ireland, we have children and young people are probably more on smartphones and the internet than any other country. Um, so there are questions we have to ask, yeah. but I do think there are a lot of positives for children in terms of digital technology and education. And I think we have to have a more rounded view in relation to it. Uh, do children at nine years of age need a smartphone? Well, that's the, that's the, the big question, isn't it? I mean, mm. I know a lot of... A lot uh, of and is that the yeah. problem that we don't actually know the answer top of our head, instinctively yeah. be able to yeah. respond, and that you might ask one person and get one answer and get yeah. the completely opposite answer of somebody else? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I know that the Department of Education is asking schools to do consultations with their school communities and my children directly to ask them about that because in some schools that most schools actually have banned the use of uh, mobile phones and mm. smartphones in, in, in schools this is particularly at primary school level and what they'll tell you is that children are using them after school um, uh, and they're using them in the evening to communicate with their friends and, and with their family lying awake but, all night and not, well potentially yeah. but that's, mm-hmm. that's your parenting mm-hmm. issue isn't it I mean if your child is mm. up all night on a mobile phone 
that's down to the parents and what kind of boundaries are, are they setting down for, for their children. Mm. Um, but I, I do think we probably don't know enough about what children's experiences are of, of mobile phones uh, and of smartphones. And I think asking them, involving them, uh, and you know, asking them what do they want, because one of the things that does happen for a lot of young people, and they'll say this, is that you know, there's a lot of social pressure to have a smartphone in school. Uh, and, you know, being the last person to get a smartphone in the class can make you the most unpopular child in the class. So that's why you're seeing huge levels of smartphone mm. ownership, particularly at the age of 10, 11, 12. I suppose um, it's a little bit like not going to football practice or to dancing or whatever it is that a child wants to do. Uh, you're not participating in something that all of the other children are doing, whether that's on Facebook or one of these other apps. That's right. I mean, if the class are all communicating on WhatsApp and you don't have mm. access to WhatsApp, you're behind and you're excluded. Um, if the, if the, if you're, often children are meeting each other um, to play games online, and that's one of the big things that they're doing. It means you can't do that. You can't plan uh, to, to, to meet online and play a game. So because it's part of how they socialise at the moment, uh, I think it does put a lot of pressure on them. But I think actually getting school communities and getting children and parents in schools to think about it and think whether it's helping them uh, in everyday life, uh, helping their friendships, it's helping them from an mm. educational point of view, is, is the right way forward. And I think a lot of the primary schools, you know, restricting the use of the phone so they're not interfering with learning is probably a good thing. Uh, and they will say it's a, it's a good thing. OK, well, you've given us some food for thought this morning, Tanya, and thank you for doing that and indeed for joining us as always. Tanya Ward, Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance. Michael Reed on LMFM. I've no doubt our political correspondent Sean Defoe is going to explain to us how they're going to reach a deal on Brexit. Good morning, Sean. Thanks for joining us. Don't mention the war. I mentioned it once, but I think I might have got away with it. Uh, Micheál Martin's been making a big fuss over comments. Uh, Shane Ross said uh, being recorded unknowingly. Uh, the Irish Independent's been making a big fuss about these comments in which he, he said that there's uh, probably going to be border checks if there's no deal. Uh, and indeed, I understand some of uh, the British papers have picked up on this as well. What is the fuss? Yeah, well, this is kind of the fear that the Irish government have. They ever got back to the end talking about planning for a no border. It's probably why they've been saying that there's absolutely no planning going on because of the fears of how it would be picked up in the British press and then relayed and then possibly the fear down the road that the, some British politicians will say, well, why should we worry about a hard border? It's the Irish government going to look after it. It's not our problem. What happened at that press conference was that Shane Ross was asked a, a fairly standard question and he said he, he supposed there would have to be some checks on goods that were coming mm. in from the UK and plans for uh, going to Ireland via Northern Ireland. But then afterwards, after the uh, press conference had finished on the... One of the mics that was left up, there was an, a conversation overheard where Simon Coveney, really for the first time, did concede that, yeah, there would have to be some sort of checks, but it wasn't clear where they would be. Would they be perhaps at ports, which had been suggested that maybe if goods were coming from the UK into Northern Ireland, they would then be checked at the ports so that they couldn't uh, go into Northern Ireland or into the Republic of Ireland without mm. some sort of checks, would it be in the Irish Sea or where it would be? Uh, the teachers then tried to play that down quite a bit yesterday, but Micheál Martin, I think, fairly rightly criticising the government, saying this. They seem to be saying one thing privately and discussing something privately mm. and saying something entirely different to the public, probably for the optics of it and how it will play in the UK as much as how it will play here. So. Well, uh, I think the biggest gaffe uh, came from Simon Coveney saying, look, you know, if you get into that talk, uh, well, then, you know, you don't know where it's going to end up. Uh, and Shane Ross saying, well, I didn't know what to say. Uh, but 
what he did say was completely accurate. If there's no deal, there'll have to be checks, won't there? Yeah, well, there's two trains of thought on Shane Ross's performance the other night because it was one of the worst performances I've seen from a minister in terms of answering questions. But the bit that he did leak was actually probably one of the rare bits of honesty we've seen mm. around Brexit from the government because he was pretty much saying what well, we've all thought. Yeah, there will have to be some sort of checks. There doesn't seem to be a way around that if there's an odious Brexit. Uh, but quickly rolled back then when he realised that wasn't the party line and Simon Coveney did try to intervene and he somewhat learned his lesson there when he was asked another couple of tricky questions later on. He deferred straight away to the taunter and the very last one where he was asked a question which is quite relevant is basically would your car insurance cover you if you drive into the north in the event of an ODA Brexit? And he said he'd have to get back to the journalist. We're hearing some reports now that there will mm. have to be special green cards issued to Irish motorists if they want to travel up the north to say that they're insurance covers them so you could see it as one him not being totally up to date on the briefing that he didn't fully know the answer to the question or you could see it as a a rare bit of honesty from ministers uh, when they've been playing this game about trying to keep the party politic happy while also you know preparing the country or he didn't know what to say or he didn't know what he he should say or how to say it and be honest and at the same time not cause the kind of headlines uh, that we've seen as a result of what he was overheard to have said Uh, in the event of uh, no deal Brexit God forbid uh, the Irish government is preparing now the Taoiseach says well we probably could be more prepared but we are preparing and we've gone to uh, that uh, contingency now uh, and uh, there's this omnibus legislation as they call it. Uh, This is a massive piece of legislation which is going to overshadow all of the working of the doll in the first quarter of business. That's right, yeah. So this is the bill that would prepare us for no deal. It's a bill the government hopes it never has to introduce and we will see the details of it published late in February. I think the 22nd of February is the date that they've set out and then possibly introduced into the House in early March. But I think it was quite instructive and the teacher was saying yesterday, you know what, these are no longer contingency plans. We're acting on no deal planning, which says quite a lot of, of what they think will get done or won't get done in the UK in the coming months. So that omnibus bill contains a huge amount of contains 21 pieces of primary legislation, more statutory instruments as well to make more than 60 changes to legislation that would be needed in the event of a no deal. And I mean, it's to do various things. Some of them as simple as just keeping planes in the sky, making sure that Irish citizens who are in the north or in the UK and who are accessing education or services can continue to do that, protecting the common travel area, things like that. But it will, if it has to come before the door, it will entirely clog things up and to the point where the government has only identified six pieces of other legislation that can be new legislation that can be introduced and passed in that time including the cervical tech tribunal and a couple of bills to allow referendums to happen in May so if we do see it it will make it easier that it's in one omnibus bill rather Mm -hmm. than what we thought before might be four or five different bills but it will take up a huge amount of our octa's time and uh, delay a lot of other good and meaningful things that probably need to pass through the Oireachtas in that time as well. We're living through dramatic times uh, but in reality, Sean, do you think that this is actually the calm before the storm? Uh, because we're in a, a bit of a, a vacuum. We knew Mrs May's deal was going to be defeated by that Commons vote, perhaps not by the extent of uh, the uh, vote I- itself. We knew that she'd survive uh, the confidence vote yesterday, uh, but we don't know where we're going from here, do we? Not really, no. We don't really know where the the next step 
is going to be and there's a number of different options I suppose we'll have a lull for a couple of days now as Theresa May tries to hash out some sort of agreement with the other party leaders in the UK and with Brussels to see if there's any more concessions she can get she has to bring that by Monday to her own parliament to basically outline plan B of what it is so really realistically there's probably four ways forward that it could go and all I would think at the moment are probably equally likely either they will reach a deal and we'll have a deal and that will be fine and we'll get into trade negotiations there'll be no deal where the UK crashes out of Europe which is probably the worst of the options they can extend Article 50 to buy more time but Europe won't allow that unless there is a reasonable chance of a deal being reached in that time they're not going to just let them kick it off for six months to have six months more of what we've seen in the last little while of complete uncertainty and no one knows what they're doing. Or the final option will be hold a second referendum and just try to call the whole thing off to actually get that second vote. And I mean, that's been building support in the UK among the Labour benches. Certainly, I don't think they have the numbers at the moment to do it. But at the moment, given the uncertainty we've seen, it's probably equally likely as the other options. Uh, and is it possible uh, for the first option to strike a, a deal for as long as uh, the backstop is in place? Uh, I mean, she'd have lost the vote last night uh, had the DUP voted against her. Yeah, the backstop has been the major issue, but there's a lot of other issues within that withdrawal agreement that the Conservatives and, and Labour voted against it for as well. Like, there's such a wide variety of opinion over there. Some of them think it keeps them too close to Europe. Some of them think it moves them too far away from Europe. So while the backstop is the major point, and I don't think the DUP will ever be on board with that, that's just plain fact. They're not going to support it and they want it gone. And quite a few of the hard Brexiteers want that gone as well. But Europe simply can't concede on that. And the Taoiseach certainly yesterday saying that there won't be any sort of concession on the backstop because it's what you need. And without it, it's just promises and word. And we've seen where that's got us up to now. There hasn't been a huge amount of good faith in these negotiations, I don't think, uh, to actually get something done. So it's kind of the immovable force and uh, or the unstoppable force and the immovable object at the moment. You know, they, they need, Europe needs this and Britain doesn't want it, but it's somewhere stuck in the middle. Uh, and... I suppose it's possible uh, if uh, there was to be a general election and Mrs May wasn't uh, relying on the support of the DUP. It's possible, but God knows where that will lead us. And I mean, Jeremy Corbyn has said he's going to possibly do a rolling series of confidence votes in the government. We saw them uh, fairly easily defeated last night. I mean, it was 19 votes in the end, but Mm. the DUP won't ever vote with Labour on that because they know they're unlikely to be back in the balance of power mm. if the uh, if they're in the event of the ele- of election. God knows what numbers it would turn up. It's a weird one in terms of an election because the Tories don't want Theresa May to lead them into that election. Lots of the... Um, their biggest fear really is that there will be a new Labour leader who would lead them into that. For a lot of people in Labour that don't particularly want Jeremy Corbyn to lead them into that next election either. So... There's a lot of people lined up against it who don't have an interest in having an election. But, you know, it's still on the cards. It could happen. But in the event of that, you would think they would have to extend Article 50 to allow the time for that election to happen and then a new government, if it was, to come in and and actually go and try and renegotiate a deal. All right. Well, I'm glad you clarified all of that for us and we know where we're going from here. Thanks for joining us as (laughs) always, Sean. Thank you indeed. Sean Defoe, our political correspondent. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to all our listeners. John from Navin is one of those listeners, and he rang in to say 
he thinks Theresa May made bags of Scotland and Northern Ireland. Scotland should go and have another referendum and remain in the Union and that would put a stop to her backstop because Scotland didn't want to leave in the first place. Neither did Northern Ireland. He thinks that Theresa May made a mistake and now she has nowhere out of it. She's backed into a corner. He thinks that at the end of it all, Michael, they'll have to have another referendum. Uh, well, maybe they will. Maybe they won't. <laughs> Michelle from Drogheda mm. uh, says, we have to hold firm on the backstop. I'm listening into your discussion. And why should the UK have it every way? It is them deciding to go. They need to agree to the deal in its entirety, which includes the backstop. It is the only insurance policy that Ireland has. Mm. Sean from Dundalk feels that Mar- Mascarty is right. We've had two and a half years of talk and they still can't agree. So really, will another few years make any difference to that outcome? Sean thinks that the DUP would only be delighted if we gave in on the backstop. They represent the North of Ireland with a majority, let's remember, voted to stay in the EU, but they are ignoring their wishes. They will not listen to any other viewpoint. OK, well, I suppose that's uh, because the DUP doesn't trust the Irish government or our European partners and believes it might lead to a united Ireland and uh, the Irish government and our European partners, uh, it appears, don't trust trust uh, the DUP or the British government uh, and are, are concerned uh, that if a, a backstop isn't in place uh, that it will result in a hard border. A text from Tom in Clarehead who says anywhere the DUP goes there's no functioning government. Uh, Brendan texted in to say in relation to Brexit and the possibility of a hard border how would that affect bus air and air coach services to Belfast, Dublin and return and also the many other bus services that service cross border routes along the border from Donegal to Dundalk a lot of students cross over to go to school and how would all that work? Okay, well, I suppose uh, there are some of uh, the unknowns as we speak. We'll come back to more of those comments in a moment, but let's talk about now, uh, talk talk now about what's being uh, described as uh, the biggest cattle theft in history. The Irish Farmers Journal reporting on this today. Amy Ford is its deputy news editor and on the line. And this came to light in October as I understand it, uh, Amy, uh, on a farm in County Meath. That's correct, Michael, and good morning. Good morning um, so 210 cattle were reported stolen in November um, in a farm in South County Meath um, by a farmer to the Department of Agriculture and to the Gardaí. Um, mystery kind of surrounded the story when we first came upon it. So in late October, um, the farmer reported to the guards that a large number of cattle tags had been stolen from his jeep. Um, but a number of weeks later, he told Gardy that during a, an annual TB test on the farm, um, he noticed that 210 cattle had actually been stolen as well. Um, now, the farmer has between seven, six and 700 head mm. of cattle, so that's a, a massive amount of cattle um, of all ages, weights and breeds. And there's no description of um, any of the cattle that were taken. As I said, they're completely mixed. Um so Gardaí told the Farmer Journal that the farmer believes the cattle were stolen over a number of weeks leading up to November 2018 when he did the herd test and, and realised that they were gone. So despite it being uh, the biggest theft of cattle that has ever occurred uh, in this country, it wasn't immediately obvious until he did this count as a result of the TB test. Yeah, that's correct, Michael. Um, and now we were told that the, the cattle were 
um, in a number of fields. Like they're in different different pockets throughout mm. South, South Mead. Um, so you can see it from that point of view. But, but it is an, an absolutely massive number of cattle to go missing from one farm. Um, while look, while it is a large scale test and potentially is the biggest cattle test in in the history of the state, which is mad. It's an absolutely tiny, minuscule fraction of the overall cattle in in the country. Right. And what would two hundred and ten cattle be worth? It depends. It depends on their their ages and weights and everything else and how old they were. We'll say um, it could be anything, any number at all. Um, I suppose if we go back to um, the last uh, big theft in the country, which was in Westmeath in 2015, um, 75 cattle and, and 25 years were taken there, and they were worth 107,000 euro. Um, I suppose we can't really put a value on these animals that were stolen in Mead um, to, uh, just yet. All right, uh, but you're talking about a, a significant steal uh, and undoubtedly a lucrative business for those who are in the business of uh, carrying out these thefts. Yeah, definitely. Um, it is. It's a. It's a. It's a very big volume of cattle from one farm. Um, but like we will point out that they can't leave the jurisdiction without their passports. So it's likely that some are alive and in other herds or feedlots, um, or on the other side is that, is that they've been killed for processing. Mm, well, that's it. They can be uh, slaughtered, can't they? Yeah, exactly. Um, oh. And maybe sold out of the back of a van? Potentially, Michael, yeah, potentially. All right. Uh, well, food for thought, uh, pardon the pun, but uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Amy Ford, Deputy News Editor with the Irish Farmers Journal there. Now, let's go back to more of your thoughts and some more of uh, the calls that you have there, Marie. Yes, just sticking with Brexit for the moment. Shame is from... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss Dog says if the DUP as Jim Wells maintains don't want a hard border then why did they vote against the deal as Jim Wells himself says in your interview Michael it's only two paragraphs but saying they don't want a hard border it's just words when the actions mean that there will be one talk is cheap Jim 
say All right. Us. Well, Jim Wells would say uh, they don't want a united Ireland. They don't want a hard border, but they prefer a hard border than uh, united Ireland. And uh, there is no need for the backstop. The backstop could lead to a united Ireland, uh, but it's not necessarily the case uh, that there would be a hard border if you take away the backstop. Anne phoned in with an interesting comment to ask, is it only, is is she alone or is it the same with others that it's only now that the penny is dropping in relation to the significance of what a no deal Brexit could mean for Ireland? Here in talk of medicine shortages, mm. having to have a card to prove insurance crossing from the south to the north and all sorts of other things really makes you think, not to mention, she says, the economic implications, mm. a huge concern. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I think maybe she's right. Uh, the penny is dropping for a lot of people. Another listener says, listening to your political correspondent and you can't help but think that the government is not at all ready for an ordeal Brexit. And that's hard to believe that they were not making some contingency plans, Michael, when nobody could predict what way it was going to go. Mm, yeah. uh, moving from that, if I can, to the use of mobile phones amongst children. Deirdre from Kaz was listening into your interview and says that she feels the bottom line is that children shouldn't be allowed to have smartphones at all, that they shouldn't have access to the internet. An ordinary mobile phone is fine if they need to contact you in an emergency, but not before a certain age should they be allowed to get their hands on a smartphone. Uh, Mary phoned in on the same topic, says the parents need to think hard about technology and allowing young children on the net. All it takes, she feels, is a bit of common sense. Allowing children, though, to buy smartphones with their first communion money is beyond foolish. They are far too young. All right. Uh, And uh, I suppose you've got to look at the other side of it, uh, which we were discussing. Uh, Those arguments are very valid, uh, but we were hearing some other valid arguments uh, this morning. I think, what if your child is the odd one out? Mm. Won't they be treated as the odd child? Uh, And uh, I think that's uh, the dilemma that uh, a lot of parents face. Just moving then to the nurses' strike, Teresa phoned in to say that she's been looking at and listening to the media coverage in relation to Pascal Donoghue's comments about the strike and the fact that he doesn't agree with giving them a pay increase. And she says that it's her opinion that if he was to go to hospital, the chances are he'd be going to a nice private hospital and be well looked after. Therefore, he doesn't know what it's like for the rest of us having to use the public service. Maybe he should try going into a public hospital and see how hard the nurses have to work. Teresa has been in hospital overnight herself in the past and she felt so sorry for the overworked staff and would see them leaving work exhausted every morning and she thinks the minister is lacking in understanding about how hard they do work. Okay. Leave the final word to Teresa. All right, thanks, uh, Teresa. Thanks, Marie, for that matter. And everybody who has been in touch with us, if you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. And our telephone number is 1850 715 958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, let's uh, talk about uh, some of uh, the pressing issues of uh, the day with Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash, who's taking time out of his Christmas holidays to come in to talk to us this morning. Uh, and uh, I'm sure sure uh, you've had a, a good rest five weeks in now and are all geared up to get back to work next week. 
Well, if you call holidays coming in to see you, Michael, on the 2nd of January, <laughs> um, they certainly weren't yeah, uh, holidays. Um, and I, I know you say that uh, with your tongue firmly mm. in your cheek. Uh, you know that TDs and Senators have been working hard probably since the 2nd of January, but uh, unfortunately this week the Shannon isn't sitting. And I made remarks this week at a press conference that drew some public attention uh, through the national media where I, mm. in essence, complained that um, the doll was sitting while the Shannon wasn't. Um, now, it's often the case that the Shannon sits later in a doll session to deal with business uh, that uh, the doll has sent to it, uh, amending legislation, completing legislation and so on in the normal way. Um, but um, I would prefer to see um, both the doll and the Shannon sittings mm. aligned. Now, the doll and the Shannon sit uh, pretty much um, the same number of days each year um, and for the same amount of hours are very similar uh, indeed. So um, I'm just concerned that um, because we had no business um, from government, mm. Uh, and there's a lack of legislation coming from government given that we're in the teeth of Brexit mm. and given the complex set of affairs that we're facing now and the need, the as we know this week, Michael... pressing post-war most crisis that we can possibly imagine. But uh, the Shannon isn't shitting, sitting, but it wasn't scheduled to sit for that matter. That's right. And, I mean, what I find remarkable is that um, we have been, at least we're being told by government... Um, in recent months that preparations are being made uh, in the event of a hard Brexit. And the reality is that we may very well be facing a hard Brexit. Mm. And the fact of the matter is, it's only this week that the government has announced that they will be introducing what they call an omnibus bill, um, a bill covering 15 different policy areas. And, and this health, is the social welfare, mm-hmm, this is the serious policing. matter of government at, at the moment. And That's I right. have been speaking tongue in cheek up to down of a feeling, feeling that the Freudian slip that I made a moment ago is going to be played back to me ad nauseum and I'm finding it hard not to smile. But there is some very, very serious business at, at hand. Uh, but there is no legislation because this is the legislation, this omnibus piece of legislation, uh, which is looking at between 40 and 60 different areas of, of laws to different degrees. Uh, so the government is going to be totally concentrated on that, which leaves scope for, I think, just six other pieces of legislation. So there's little for the Shannon to do. That's right. And given as well that um, we, we, we are... are a country that's not without its difficulties at the moment, and a society that's not without its difficulties in terms of the housing crisis, in terms of uh, hundreds of people lying in hospital trolleys, uh, hundreds of thousands of people waiting for medical appointments, mm. uh, things that the Dáil and Shannon could put their mind to. Um, the point I made to a journalist earlier on this week was that uh, it's only now uh, that the government is scheduling um, very, very important pieces of legislation to protect Ireland's interests in the context of a hard Brexit. Fifteen sections of that legislation. It will be an enormous bill. They'll be publishing the heads of that bill over the next, I think, two to three weeks. Uh, and the timeline suggests that that legislation, if everything goes according to plan for government, um, and that's assuming that they get cooperation from those of us who are in opposition, that this legislation won't be passed until... Uh, at the earliest, the 7th of March. Mm. Now that uh, runs up against St. Patrick's Day and I'm not going to criticise ministers Mm. for travelling on St. Patrick's Week because I think it's critical, particularly this year, that ministers do uh, that important diplomatic trade work, Mm -hmm. fly the flag. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did it myself as a minister. I've seen the benefits of it Mm. uh, in terms of job creation and in terms of promoting Ireland abroad and it's very, very important, particularly in the context of Brexit. But we are running out of time and we could be using this week. Remember, Michael, that's not just a dollar that can can 
understand it do. Well. I, I mean, you look at this story this morning about green cards for motorists crossing the border. These are the sort of things that need to be shored up and rapidly so. So, right. I, I mean, that's not, what this yeah. legislation will hope to address and then it'll go to the Shannon. That may not require primary legislation, but mm. in any event, the point I'm making is that it's not always the case that legislation tar- starts its journey in the Dáil. Mm. It starts it in the Shannon as well. They're houses of, two, of equal standing in, in, many, in many respects, the joint houses of the Oireachtas. We have started many, many bills in the Shannon over the last couple of years successfully and in fact what happens in the Shannon is it's much more deliberate and discursive mm. chamber um, I would say that the quality of the debate having sat in both chambers is better well, well senators in, in, always in, do in, say in the that Shannon, they, but yeah. it's mm. less adversarial mm. more discursive uh, and more cooperative and it's a good place to start legislation particularly legislation like this that may may be contentious although we would hope of course everybody mm. would hope that people would um um, you know, put their heads together and make mm. sure that we can get this legislation right at the outset. But the point is, we are losing time as each hour goes by. We're mm. getting closer to that date of the 29th of March, where the where Article 50 is 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 triggered, and where you know we could potentially have a no deal mm. Brexit. We need to be prepared for that. You know, and I don't, I, I can't see why there was any reason when this legislation was delayed. And I'm making that point in general, not mm. just the fact that the channel was sitting this week, but. We have been looking, staring at the barrel of a gun of a potential hard Brexit now for some time. Yeah. That legislation should have been prepared and could but, have been tabled. But, but this why week. weren't you saying this in December? It is something that we discussed at our own parliamentary party meeting. Mm. We were getting very, very little feedback from government. Mm. It was almost a case that government was saying, look, you know, keep calm and carry on. Mm. Um, that there's nothing to see here. Brendan Howland made a But there's no emergency. There won't talking. be an emergency until... Well, we need to be prepared. We're, we're being told mm. that we won't hope for the best but expect the worst. Mm. Um, but we hadn't seen any level of preparedness. Now, I'm not dissing the government and I'm not mm. dissing those who are working, I'm sure, at a very you know, a senior level, uh, government of civil service and so on, preparing Ireland uh, for mm. the possible eventuality of a hard Brexit. But... Um, I think those preparations should have been better advanced. They should have been discussed with opposition parties because opposition parties, obviously, in the context of a potential mm. national crisis, are prepared to put their our collective shoulders to the wheel to assist in that because nobody wants a hard Brexit. Everybody wants Ireland to be as unscathed as mm. possible coming through this process. But undoubtedly, there's been a, a, a lot of work, a lot of preparation has already gone into this. Yeah, well, I'll give you an example mm. um, this week. Um, Brendan Howland was um, down in his own constituency in Ross Lair, spent about half a day uh, speaking to the port company uh, uh, operation down there and businesses that depend on Ross Lair port. Um, it's very unclear what preparations have been made uh, to ensure that um, Ross Lair port uh, mm. operates at an optimum level to make sure Irish goods can be transported to the continent without using the UK land bridge that we use mm. currently. Um, we're being told that well, land has been set aside, that the OPW have bought land to develop yeah. parts of but to no, build nothing a, is clear. To build nothing something the size of Crow Park. Yeah, but nothing is clear yet. Yeah. I mean, that mm. takes time. Yeah, well, that'll um, take years, that, won't that it? That takes time. We're not told, you know, the precise number of customs mm. officers that'll be operating. We saw this week, in fact, that, and I think we can be uh, rightly concerned about mm. this, uh, this offline conversation that the Taunashta had with the incompetent Shane Ross, uh, who, on the one hand, turned around at a government press conference and said, well, there may very well be, um, you know, border checks on goods and but so on. But there will be. But sure you know that. March, and Simon Coven saying, look, will you kill the gen- here, uh, we can't be saying that publicly. So, mm. you know, that's obviously a possibility. But mm. I mean, if that's the level of competence that we have at government level, particularly for the Minister of Transport, I guess we can expect mm. that from a man. Yeah. Well, you can let on you're surprised by that um, comment uh, as much as you like, but I mean, that's just common sense. Anybody? It is, uh, but I'd prefer if government were open about it, mm. have those conversations. Uh, and, you know, no, no, nobody, nobody is fooled by mm. you know, the pretense that 
there's a possibility that there, you know, if there's a, if there's a hard Brexit, then mm. well, of course there will. But be I mean, I mean, it's not good that government has lied. I mean, the stock response to that question is, well, we don't countenance the idea of a hard border. We're not preparing for one. But I mean, the implied answer is that if there is a hard border, of course there'll be checks. And my point is, I guess, globally, Michael, that you know, preparations are being made. Preparations should be made, mm. but we should be better prepared. The legislation should be on the blocks. We and and, and your this. point is that the Shannon should be sitting, but the doll isn't even preparing for this uh, as we speak. Uh, as you say, the legislation is in the process of being drafted. It's going to run to 700 pages or something. It's, you're talking about a, a huge body of work uh, and may be introduced uh, sometime in March. Uh, so uh, what would the Shannon do? Well, but the Shannon, if the government were better prepared, um, the Shannon could be dealing with this this week. For example, I mean, it's going to take, I think, four, three or four weeks now for the heads of the bills mm. of the bill to be prepared, to be presented uh, to the Dáil table, to the Dáil, go through a second stage, the Dáil committee stage, report and final stage. Then it will move over to the Shannon for uh, the mirror image uh, of mm. that um, process. Uh, and remember, the Shannon committee stage almost uh, often takes um, a little bit longer because committee stage of any legislation involves every single member of the Shannon, mm. as does report uh, and final uh, stage. Um, so I think it would have been better um, if this legislation had been prepared well before Christmas and we were scheduled to deal with the introduction of this legislation in the Shannon uh, so we could advance it well before um, the 29th of March because as it's scheduled at the moment this legislation with the best will in the world won't be passed mm. uh, before the 7th of March. But, but, but what do you make of uh, the British debate this week? Uh, what's been happening in Parliament? Uh, we'd uh, The deal rejected and emphatically so uh, and then the confidence motion last night. There's a, a lot of criticism I, I think of Jeremy Corbyn this morning. Yeah, and uh, I would be uh, one of those critics, and not for the first time have I said that um, Jeremy Corbyn, I think, needs to show real and decisive leadership uh, and decide once and for all that the best way out of this deadlock uh, is to put um, this question to the British people again. Um, the British people were, to put it diplomatically, misinformed uh, about the um, context of Brexit and about the consequences of um, Brexit uh, when they voted uh, in the middle of 2016 uh, I think there's a, a an audience uh, now, a growing audience and all the evidence shows that 72% of British Labour Party members themselves want a second vote uh, nobody in Britain ever took the time um, to explain uh, in a rational way to the British people the benefits of the membership of the European Union and for somebody who has all his life championed uh, the rights of working people um, and uh, championed equality, um, I think uh, he needs to take a second look at this because the European Union mm-hmm. has been a guarantor of workers' rights and guarantor of equality. Should he enter these cross-party talks with Mrs May? Um, I think he was right in what he said yesterday evening mm-hmm. in terms of the cross-party Stay talks in the, the invitation, in the invitation that was extended to him. Well, if you could call it an invitation. I think he was right to say that he wouldn't sit down with Theresa May to discuss, to talk Turkey as it were uh, until such time as the prospect of, of a no deal was taken off the table. Mm. That's been consistent and he's, he has been consistent on that. Uh, he's also been consistent in fairness to him and it took some work from Brendan Howell and others to convince some leading members of the British Labour Party to take this particular line and that is that, and this is now British Labour Party policy, that the um, uh, in the British Labour Party's view um, any 
Brexit format should involve staying as close as possibly aligned to the single market mm. and to retain the customs union itself. That is the British Labour Party line. That is something we have fought for. It's something that we have helped to secure. Um, there's a great difficulty now, though, in seeing where this is going to land over the next few weeks. I cannot see Article 50 being extended unless um, the British government, as it currently stands, and I can't see a general election either, mm. uh, where the government would change, um, where you know, Theresa May would resile from some of the red lines she has to allow Article 50 to be triggered. So you think there'll be no Article deal? 50, I, I just I don't know, Michael, and I'd be lying if mm. I told you um, that I knew. But I can't see a general Best election. Best odds, though, on no deal? Um, I mean, that's the way you've framed it, I think. Well, we are staring down the barrel of mm. uh, of, of no deal at this point. Um, having said that, um, you, the European Union itself, and I know from even from my own experience as uh, being an Irish representative and council of ministers in terms of the social affairs council of ministers, that often important decisions are taken at the um, 11th hour. Um, there is still time, We've, but we're only 70 days away. This is an existential threat to Ireland and an existential threat to the UK, an existential threat to our economy, our society. Um, and um, nobody wants to see a no-deal scenario, and I'd support Jeremy Corbyn in that. But what we would like to see in the Irish Labour Party is a second referendum that any uh, 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 that this is put to the British people again. Mm. And that doesn't promise any guarantees either. We leave it there, though, and thank you for coming in to us uh, this morning, Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, despite uh, the urgency of Brexit and uh, the challenges it poses uh, for this country, there are other problems and we continue to have a housing crisis. Let's talk about this with Father Peter McVerry, a Jesuit priest who works uh, with uh, the homeless. And a very good morning, Peter, as always. Are you concerned uh, that Brexit is overshadowing uh, this crisis and indeed some of the other challenges uh, that uh, the government would normally be uh, giving its attention to? Well, uh, I don't think the government have been giving this, giving attention to this anyway. <laughs> this okay. crisis is uh, has been known to us. It's coming down the tracks. We've known it's coming down the tracks for for several years now, and uh, the government have done little about it. There are over forty thousand mortgages in arrears of more than two years. Mm. Twenty eight thousand of those are owner occupied. The rest are buy to lets. But almost all of those are non-restructurable. And ultimately, uh, they're, they're, they're going to be repossessed. The homes are going to be repossessed. The, the households are going mm-hmm. to be turfed out. And uh, the, the homes will be sold either by the financial institution or the voucher funds to which they have been, uh, the banks have sold them to. Now, if that happens, we have a catastrophe of homelessness coming down the road. I mean, 40,000 households is, is just a, a massive, massive... Uh, it doesn't uh, warrant thinking about it. We have a, a crisis already, and we've had one for uh, many years uh, uh, at this stage in uh, this country. You say it's coming down the tracks for thousands, albeit in a scenario where it's landed already for many. Uh, but uh, the master of uh, the High Court, uh, Edmund Honahan, has been talking about a tsunami of evictions on the way. If many of the repossession orders that have already been granted are executed. Yeah, I mean, I I called what we have today a crisis. What we could have tomorrow is a catastrophe. We could end up with whole families living in on the street, living in parks, sleeping in guard stations, because there won't be enough uh, uh, hotel bedrooms to to be able to occupy them. Now there is a solution. Mm. 
but the government are not pushing the solution. The solution is mortgage to rent. Uh, mortgage to rent means that the house, uh, the bank sells the house uh, to an authorised uh, housing uh, provider who will then uh, charge the occupants a rent. So the occupants remain in the house, but instead of owning the house, they are now become tenants uh, of the uh, housing association. And you rent and they, the house they, that you they, once they, had a mortgage on. That's right, mm. and you can uh, you you're, you're guaranteed at the minimum twenty five year uh, rent in that house, and if your circumstances change, you can buy the house back again from the. Uh, it seems to me just so obvious a solution, and yet uh, the government are not pushing it. The limits, mm. the, the the eligibility for mortgage to rent is very limited. Uh, your income has to be below the social welfare uh, rates. Uh, so that you you can become a social welfare tenant, uh, and that's a huge, huge restriction. So uh, we need to expand the eligibility for mortgage to rent, and I believe we need to make it obligatory in the first place on mm. on financial institutions and vulture funds who who wish to sell the uh, the property. I actually think it's quite attractive to the banks if the eligibility was it was extended because if the banks want to sell a house first there's the reputational damage of throwing thousands of households out of their out of their home mm-hmm. and secondly the banks then have to uh, secure that home pay security guards to look after it and then go through the hassle of selling it whereas if a housing association comes in and offers to buy that house off them maybe at a 20% discount I think the banks would be, it is very attractive to the banks to uh, to do that. It saves them an awful lot of hassle and it saves them the reputational risk of being seen to put families out onto the street. And uh, there's uh, the societal impact uh, as well uh, that we all have to take into consideration and the idea of 40,000 houses being repossessed. Uh, the Irish Examiner reported on uh, this problem yesterday and Edmund Honahan and his concerns about a tsunami of of uh, evictions uh, taking place. He, he was making the point that repossessions are a rare thing in, in uh, this country, but that's a, a view that we have based on the amount of physical evictions that have taken place or voluntary surrenders, but that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of repossession orders outstanding. But he was saying that those orders should be cancelled because of the length of time that has lapsed between the application for the repossession order and where we are today. Well, I don't know about the legalities of that. He would he would be um, obviously uh, much more uh, expert on that. Well, he's but saying that I, seven years on, the courts actually were yeah. misled when the orders were uh, applied for. Yeah, I mean, if, if there's a, if there's a legal uh, uh, if there's a legal problem, of course, I'm all for keeping people in their homes and let's use the legal law to uh, uh, to do that. But I think we do have a very low rate of repossessions compared to other countries. But that could very easily change because house prices are still going up. Mm. Why would a bank repossess a house today? Uh, if it can hang on for two years and get an extra 30% uh, for the sale value of it in two years' time because house prices are still increasing. 
So I think, uh, you know, we're, we're going to see uh, that uh, avalanche of, of repossessions mm. coming down the road uh, over the next couple of years, as well as that the European Central Bank is putting pressure on the Irish banks to get rid of these distressed mortgages. And they've given them about two years to do so. And so the only way the banks can get rid of those distressed mortgages is either repossess the whole houses or sell them to a vulture fund who subsequently, when house prices uh, reach their peak, will uh, will throw the people out and, and, and sell them. And why is it, do you think, uh, that people who live in uh, the 40,000 homes uh, that you're talking about uh, that are in arrears will pay rent if they can't or won't pay their mortgage? Well, the rent is, is a differential rent. You pay a rent depending on your, on your income, so the same way as a social welfare tenant does. So you have a home and you pay a rent. The rent could be very low if you're on social welfare and you're a single person. The rent could be in the region of 30 to 40 euros a week. If you have a good income, then the rent obviously will be will be higher. I think we need to expand the notion of a mm. mortgage to rent. It's a, We need affordable housing. You know, the, the income limits, as I say, are very low. You have to be eligible for mm. for. A, uh, for social housing. But how do you do that oh, fairly? I mean, would you allow a single person to live in a house worth half a million or expect... Uh, no, there's a, no, no. We're mm. talking about the normal run-of-the-mill mortgages. We're not talking about somebody who's living in a in a one million pound uh, euro mansion. Mm. Uh, but we need to expand. People need affordable housing. There are people who are not eligible for social housing because their income is too high, mm. but their income is too low to get a mortgage. And they're stuck in the middle, and they require affordable housing. Now, two years ago, the government promised it would introduce an affordable housing uh, uh, process, okay, but, but we haven't seen it yet. But would, would you allow somebody to live in a house worth three hundred thousand or two hundred and fifty thousand euro and pay maybe five thousand in rent over the course of a year? If, uh, if, uh, as an alternative to becoming homeless and putting mm-hmm. a huge burden on, how would that sit with their with their neighbours? Well, basically, having a home is a fundamental human right, and I think uh, because uh, because you can't afford uh, to pay they, what your neighbours yeah. are paying, that mm. doesn't. Uh, but would their neighbours not be entitled to say, "Look, if they can get that house for nothing or next to nothing, I, I, I don't really want to pay for mine either." Well, I think very few people would give up if they can afford to pay a mortgage. They would give very few people would give up uh, ownership of their house. Uh, to become uh, tenants of, of of some of some other body, I don't think that is a realistic uh, uh, prospect, really. Mm. You could uh, do that. I mean, uh, at the type of rent that you're talking about, you could uh, put the rest of what you'd be saving from mortgage repayments into the bank for your retirement, couldn't you? Well, I, as I say, I, I think very, very few mm. people would get that. The idea. Yeah, of but this is the moral own, hazard, isn't it? I mean, that's what they call it. Yeah, we, we need to discuss this, but mm. I think the prior the bottom the bottom line is that everybody is entitled to have a home to live in at a price which they can afford, and we have to find ways of ensuring that that happens. And because somebody had a mortgage. Uh, when perhaps they, they and their partner were both working and then they lost their jobs or they separated and they can no longer afford to pay the mortgage, I don't think uh, 
that is a reason for becoming homeless, particularly okay. if there are children involved. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Many thanks for joining us, as always. Father Peter McVerry, Jesuit priest who works with the homeless. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to uh, the idea of uh, a no-deal uh, Brexit and uh, the prospect of returning to a hard border between Dundalk and Newry. People in Dundalk are concerned that they've been telling Marie Kearns why. I worry about Dundalk's situation because we're right on the border on how it's going to affect local businesses and we don't want a border in Dundalk. So the rest of it's a bit confusing, but... And then I was worried yesterday because Leo Vradkar said something about his deal wasn't... He had been working towards... Um, no hard no hard, yeah. no hard border. Yeah. And then he said yesterday he wasn't sure. So that's another worry for us. But the rest of it's all over my head, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> it was inevitable to vote last night. But uh, the whole scenario is a disaster. The unfortunate man that set about it, David Cameron, that cost him his job. So it's going to cost a good many more jobs before the whole thing's finished. Wherever it's going to go now, it's up in the air. We're going to have an open border still, no matter how they get around it, but they still have to walk that particular area out as to how we're going to get there. I think it's very bad for us. I think it's going to bring back a hard border, and I think it's going to be very inconvenient all around. And I don't think they have any thought for Ireland at all. Does it worry you? I suppose not worry at my age, but concern, yes. And do you think that uh, Theresa May will succeed in getting a Brexit with a deal, or do you think they'll crash out without a deal? What's your thoughts? Or will it be another referendum? I'd like to think it would be another referendum, because I think that would change things. But I have a fear that it would just crash out with no deal. I'm not overly worried. Just a little bit concerned. I think it's a terrible thing. I think they should have voted for it, for their own, even for their own country's sake. Yeah. I said it won't, won't be too good for Ireland but it'd be a lot worse for them. And I think they're very foolish not to support her. And do you worry about a hard border? Not really, no. No, no. I don't. I don't. It's not, I don't I, I, I'm, I, I'm a little bit concerned, but not really. I can't imagine that the troubles will come back. I don't people, people don't want that. I can't imagine it ever happening again. It's too painful for people to imagine it ha- happening again. I think so. It would concern me, to be honest, because I'm from Newry, living in Dundalk, and... Obviously, to see my parents and to maybe think about going looking for work again, it would really affect me. So hopefully it doesn't come back in. And would you be worried if there was a hard board that you'd have, it'd be tough going back and forth? It would, absolutely. Just the hassle of two kids, you know, living in Dundalk, I'm just over the border. So it would be so much hassle. I'm always up and down, so it would really affect me. You'd hate to see a return to that you'd be stopped at the border. Yeah, I'd hate it. I'd absolutely hate it. It would be so much inconvenience. You tell me you're from Syria and you're living in Dundalk. Yeah. Is Brexit on your radar? Yeah, I'm following the newspaper like daily. Like it comes like all all the top like the news. Uh, it's like you know all talking about the hard borders and all of that. This which is not gonna happen. I think like everyone is talking. It's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. Do you but, think? Yeah, I, I'm sure for that. You know, it's like it's one bar, it's one country. Like there's, they can't put that. Like it's, you know, it's one country. Like one of my friends, like one of them, I used to be in Monaghan before in Dundalk. Like my friends, his family, half of them in Armagh and in Belfast and all, and half is there. Some of them living in Armagh, yeah. while their kids in schools in Monaghan. So daily, you don't have to show like it's can't, it's not gonna happen to show your passport daily and to to like to pass in the border, shaking all. So this is my. 
That's your view. <laughs> yeah, my views. Well, uh, being honest with you, it doesn't really bother me. I think Ireland will look after itself. So it's just the borders. Just the, it's nice the way they are at the moment. I hope to stay that way. So that's really it. It doesn't. It doesn't really annoy me, but the way we can get into Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland get into the south, I hope it doesn't change. It's it's a bit of a worry. With, uh, you wouldn't want a hard border or anything like that, but uh, hopefully they can maybe extend Article 50 and get it sorted. But possibly the most likely thing now is probably a general election for them. But then again, Corbyn has said he's still committed to Brexit as well, but maybe... Uh, uh, same as Prime Minister, he's not going to be pushing with his with May's hard red lines about um, you know backstops and everything else. So you know maybe with him as PM, might be a better chance of the North and the UK staying in the customs union, and we'd be able to avoid a hard border that way. Do you think the government here is prepared enough for like the UK crashing out with no deal? Honestly, I think they've only started really looking at it in the last couple of weeks. You can see that in the press and all that, but. Uh, I don't think they're as prepared as they could be. So the only the the only saying there last week in the paper that they're literally going to stop all new laws. Pretty much, it's all just going to be now about um, about preparing for a no deal Brexit. I mean, they could have been doing that six months ago, like you know. So, but hopefully they can get prepared. But hopefully again, it's a situation we don't have to have to deal with. I remembered back years ago, we used to be going across for the lorries. The lorries would be held up for maybe a half a day for half an hour's run you know that sort of thing and you worry those days will return if they crash out with no deal well it could do yeah you tell me you're 21 years of age does Brexit have any interest for you not at all no not to ever it doesn't really affect me well not that I know of now you're not worried that if uh, the UK kind of crashes out of the EU with no deal that there could be implications for Ireland well not the we haven't, well, my age group, well, me anyway, haven't really have any knowledge of or haven't been told anything about it. So, the minute for me, it doesn't really affect me. I'm in college working, so I don't know. Um, I'm still as confused as ever, and it looks like everybody's very confused. I have grave concerns about our economy and also about the hard border. I do remember queuing at the border for hours and hours and hours, and I certainly wouldn't like to go back to that. I think it would affect the trade, particularly the haulage trade here in this country and our exports. So I have concerns, yes, definitely, and I'm no further uh, to understanding it. That's the scary thing that politicians are making these decisions and they're confused. And that doesn't help. That doesn't, uh, I think nobody would have confidence in, in them. I'm not politically minded, but they just don't seem to be able to agree. They had two and a half years and they're still no further on. So it's very sad. Strong thoughts there from uh, those people who took uh, time out uh, to speak to us and many thanks uh, to everybody who spoke to Marie Kearns yesterday in Dundalk. In London last night, uh, the Prime Minister, Theresa May, spoke to the media and sounded somewhat relieved to have survived a no-confidence motion. This evening, the government has won the confidence of Parliament. This now gives us all the opportunity to focus on finding a way forward on Brexit. Theresa May said that cross-party negotiations had now begun, but not with all of the parties. This is now the time to put self-interest aside. I have just held constructive meetings with the leader of the Liberal Democrats and the Westminster leaders of the SNP and Plaid Cymru. 
From tomorrow, meetings will be taking place between senior government representatives, including myself, and groups of MPs who represent the widest possible range of views from across Parliament, including our confidence and supply partners, the Democratic Unionist Party. I am disappointed that the leader of the Labour Party has not so far chosen to take part, but our door remains open. Theresa May, disappointed by Jeremy Corbyn's position. The leader of the Labour Party explained to the House of Commons yesterday why he was not going to participate in these discussions. Last night, the House rejected the government's uh, deal, emphatically. A week ago, the House voted to condemn the idea of a no-deal Brexit. Before there can be any positive discussions about the way forward, the government... The government must remove, must remove clearly, once and for all, the prospect of the catastrophe of a no-deal Brexit of the EU and all the chaos that would come as a result of that. And I invite the Prime Minister to confirm now that the government will not countenance a no-deal Brexit from the European Union. Strong criticism of uh, the British government uh, from uh, the leader of uh, the Labour Party yesterday. But in that confidence motion, there was strong criticism of Jeremy Corbyn. Here's Tory MP and Secretary of State Michael Gove. While we are standing up for national security, what about the right honourable gentleman, the member for Islington North? He wants to leave NATO. He wants to get rid of our nuclear deterrent. And recently in a speech he said, why do countries boast about the size of their armies? That is quite wrong. We emulate Costa Rica that has no army at all. No allies, no deterrent, no army. No way can this country ever allow that man to be our Prime Minister and in charge of our national If he can't support our fighting men and women, no. Who does he support? Who does he stand beside? Well, it was fascinating to discover that the right honourable gentleman, the leader of the opposition, was there when a wreath was laid. A wreath was laid to commemorate those who were involved in the massacre at the Munich Olympics of Israeli athletes. Now, he says he was present but not involved. Present but not involved sums him up when it comes to national security. When this House voted to bomb the fascists of ISIS after an inspirational speech by the member for Leeds Central, in which 66 people, including the Shadow Secretary of State, voted with this government in order to defeat fascism, I'm afraid that the Honourable Gentleman, the Leader of the Opposition, was not with us. In fighting fascism, he was present but not involved. And similarly, when this House voted to take the action necessary, when Vladimir Putin executed an act of terrorism on our soil, there were many Labour members, many good Labour members, who stood up to support what we were doing, but not the right honourable gentleman. When we were order, order, point of order, Daniel Rennie. Hey, a genuine point of order. Is this relevant? And is this not dangerous? Uh, if, 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 if the Secretary of State were out of order, I'd have said so. I didn't because he isn't. Secretary of State. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. And 
if the leader of the opposition won't stand up against Putin when he attacks people in this country, if he won't stand up against fascists when they are running riot in Syria, if he will not stand up for this country when the critical national security questions are being asked, how can we possibly expect him to stand up for us in European negotiations? Will he stand up for us against uh, Spain over Gibraltar? Will he stand up against the Commission in order to ensure in order to ensure that we get a good deal? Of course he won't, because he won't even stand up for his own members of Parliament. Raucous scenes in the House of Commons yesterday and that contribution from Michael Gove I think gives a good indication of some of the challenges that the politicians there face in trying to reach some sort of an agreement it sounds almost impossible that's where we have to leave you our time is out God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.